Welcome to E-Commerce with Coffee, a podcast powered by Amber Engine, where we share e-com secrets for brands over your favorite brew. We start with the caffeine and then leap enthusiastically into behind-the-scenes e-com insights that led to the success of our guests. I'm Nate Svoboda, and I'm about to serve you up the best. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to today's episode of e-commerce with coffee. In this conversation, I get to speak with Matt Ranta. He is the partner and head of practice for digital and e-commerce at Nimble Gravity. And today we're really going to be talking about critical perspectives when it comes to organizational change and building your overall business strategy. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nate. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, no, me too. I, I think that we're going to have a, a really good discussion today. But before we dive in, I ask everybody this. You're a busy guy. I imagine caffeine must play some role in your life. It totally does. Uh, and I've actually been having a little bit of a caffeine delivery methodology change of heart lately, honestly. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. My I have a Nespresso uh, coffee machine with, with the pods and everything. And it um, it broke recently. One morning I went to make a cup of coffee, made mine, my wife went to make hers and it just wasn't working. So we had to send it in and while it was away, uh, I was trying to figure out what I was gonna do. And so I switched to drinking uh, chai tea lattes and all of a sudden that methodology of, of caffeine delivery, that, that flavor profile and that taste has kind of won me over. And so now I'm struggling with the fact that our machine came back all repaired, but I'm not that thrilled about using it anymore. <laughs> yeah, you're like, can you just keep it and give me a partial refund? Or... <laughs> yeah, so th there's some change for you right there, right? No, I love it. I love my, I love me a good chai latte. I haven't gotten off of the coffee kick yet, but if there was any tea that I was going to have to replace coffee with, it would probably be chai. Yep, yep. Yeah, nice. Very cool. Awesome. Um, well, excited to dive in today. You know, you have a wealth of experience. I'm really excited to learn from. Um you know, and my understanding, you have a, a track record of, you know, success when it comes to rolling out long-term organizational changes, right? But hand in hand with that comes targeting and meeting more immediate goals. So can you talk to us a little bit in the context of, you know, a B2B brand, small to midsize, how does a brand learn to articulate long-term measurable goals, but still solve those immediate pain points along the way? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question and a really interesting challenge for an organization, right? And I think what I have come to find over the years is it all comes down to planning. And you can't take change and just be completely reactionary to it, or you're going to be constantly in turmoil and constantly fighting um, with you know buy-in and, and moving the needle internally with actually getting a change done you're going to be you know up against it your competitors are probably going to be ahead of you and so it comes down to that activity of planning for change and you know for an organization to learn that and to figure that out they have to get people internally that either inherently understand that or have gone through some kind of training methodology in order to get them there. And, you know, I've often found um, both through my personal experience and through working with a lot of people that athletes actually have a lot of familiarity with this planning process and with managing consistent change with achieving short-term goals as well as achieving long-term goals. So 
I'll diverge to talking a little bit about my athletic past and say that I used to be a triathlete. And as a triathlete, I would go through a process on a regular basis of planning out an entire year's worth of races. I wasn't looking at just what I was going to do a month from now. I was looking at what I wanted to achieve a year from now or even later sometimes because you have to register for a race way ahead of time. Uh, you have to make the commitment of maybe I'm traveling, right, and I have to buy a plane ticket. And so you pick out some events that you're going to do that are kind of your A-level races that you really want to focus on, you really want to do well for. And then you start to plan smaller interval things in between those. Maybe you're doing a practice race. Maybe you're doing a shorter duration race. And you're figuring out what your training is. How are you going to build a base for your swimming? How are you going to build a base for cycling and running? These kinds of things, right? And you go through an entire process of breaking down a year into figuring out what your actual individual day is going to look like on any given week, right? I'm training for this. I'm trying to get an improvement on my swim times. I'm trying to be able to just have better endurance and cycle for longer. I'm going to work on my transitions of changing from one moment to a next, right? And it's the same kind of activity that you actually need to do within a business in order to be able to set both those really long-term goals that you're going after and those, those short-term, more achievable goals that you can rally people around, right? And so in the businesses that I've been most successful in planning for that kind of change, there are very succinct and very few high-level goals, three to five across the entire company. We're gonna focus on financial performance. We're gonna focus on globalization. We're gonna focus on process improvement, whatever it might be. And those are then rolled down through the organization and each individual group that is able to contribute to those starts to make plans in order to impact those and how they're going to achieve them. And it's a very similar process, right? You go through and you say at the end of the year, I want to have a 25% improvement in this process. And how am I going to do that? What am I going to need to do in the fourth quarter to get there? What am I going to need to do in the third quarter? What do I have to start with in first quarter? What does that look like on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis, right? And then you develop a vision of what your entire year is going to be like. And you start to actually communicate that to people, you start to talk it through, you start to you know, be honest about why you're doing these things, what you're going to achieve by doing them, how it's going to impact them. And you continue to work on that at the same time that you're working on those little daily goals. So. No, I love that. I love the example you gave. And so, you know, what I take out of that is you have a set number, you know, three to five, make, make sense, keep it small of long-term goals, but make sure the short-term actions you're taking are driving towards those at the end of the day. Everyone totally. has that, that guiding North star or those three to five guiding North stars. Um, you know, d just divulging a little, a little bit for a second. So when you did the triathlons, what was your least favorite part? What was the hardest uh, part for you? This is always an interesting conversation because I grew up doing competitive swimming. And so most people are like deathly afraid of water or hate the swim or whatever. And that was actually my favorite part. I, I was, I, I'm a not super fast runner. I'm, I'm decently fast, but I'm not like a six minute mile kind of guy. And right. so the run for me was always the most challenging. I, I'm at the end, you know, you've, you've swum, you've bicycled, you you're exhausted. And now somebody's saying, okay, well, you got to go run a half marathon. And you're like, oh my gosh, seriously. Yeah, and you've already hit like <laughs> six walls and yeah. hopefully climbed over all six of them at that point. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, holy cow. I can, I, I have it as a goal of mine to do a 10 K I've done a couple of five Ks. I want to do yep. a 10 K. I don't know if I'll ever make it up to a full half marathon or, or let alone marathon, but that's, it's a, that's a goal. And I love that. I, yeah. I have a lot of, of uh, uh, I have a lot of uh, sympathy for people that put themselves through that because that's a lot of work and training and effort that you put into it. So that's awesome. Totally Good for is. you. Totally is. So, you know, going back to this idea of, you know, having set long-term goals, driving more short-term immediate actions to achieve those, you know, we need to get buy-in from our team, whether it's at the leadership level for the more high-level goals, getting buy-in from the actual teams executing on the short-term goals. Um, how does a brand get that buy-in? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about that, but communication is a huge key, right? Like, and it's probably a theme throughout the entire series of things that you might say are what you do, right? One is you have to set the vision. How do you do that? You communicate to people, right? You hold town hall conversations, you send out emails, you record a video, perhaps if you're a really big organization, you might have to do this in multiple locations. You might have to have multiple meetings. You might have to record in multiple languages, something like that, if you have an international organization. And so you set the initial vision and then you continue to communicate after that with regular cadence, right? Like you can't let that go. You can't just be like, oh, set the vision, done. You know, change is gonna happen. You have to keep talking about it. And when you keep talking about it, it's not a one-way conversation, right? You also have to listen and understand what's going on with your teams because really you're gonna get a group of people who are 100% about the change, they saw it coming too, they agree with it, they're super excited. You're going to get people that are probably like, I don't really like change. And then you're probably also going to have people that are like, I'm not doing this. This is not for me. I don't agree with this. I think it's you know the wrong thing. We're making a mistake. And so you have to have different conversations with each of those people and understand what's going on. And right, the CEO can't do that with everybody inside the organization. So you have to have a leadership team that is going to have those conversations and make those inroads with people that are having a more difficult time with the change. What you can do is take those people who are advocates of the change across the organization, whether they are senior leadership, frontline employees, doesn't matter what their level is and utilize them to help you build those communication channels and to talk to their teams and form a committee with them, get them involved in the change process, bring them into it and have them then go back out and talk to their teams and they can then create those dialogues and bring those to you, right? So you have to, you have to do all those things and then you have to communicate those process steps that you're taking, right? And what happened with them. We've made you know, part A of, of the massive change. We've done part B. Here are the impacts that they've had. Here's the successes that we've had. Here's the setbacks that we had and where we have to go back and correct things, right? You can't be dishonest about the process and, you know, oh, it's all rosy. There's no challenges here. Every change process has challenges. Change is scary. There's yeah. always going to be a challenge. Yeah. yeah. And so you just have to have open, honest, you know, communication and feedback more than anything. So. Yeah. Well, no, I love that. Transparency is key. I've, I've heard that in a number of conversations, but I was reading recently uh, about, you know, interesting framework and there's obviously many frameworks that go into change management, but it's, it's the idea of from to because, right? Mm -hmm. We're going from this place 
to this end result because this is the change that we want to enact. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, and this is, goes back in my previous role, I was working with like CIOs and their IT teams. The hardest part or the, the biggest miss that a lot of organizational leadership makes is not believing that their team needs to know what the overarching goals for the company are. People totally. want to know how is the work that I do on a day-to-day basis actually driving value for the organization, actually contributing toward the goals that, that our leadership cares about, that our stakeholders care about, et cetera. So I, I love that. I totally agree with that. I totally do. Yeah. It's a great point. So theoretically, right. Organizational change is, is always beneficial, or at least it's always meant to be beneficial. Um, but there's probably something, you know, whether it be the brand's structure that can change or how people are collaborating. So with all of the changes that, you know, might be identified, right, there's a million competing uh, priorities that an organization deals with. How does a brand actually identify when a change is truly needed and what type of change or what level of action to take? Yeah, I, I love that question um, because it's not a simple question. Right. It sounds like it is, but but it's not Um, recognizing when change is needed is um, something that every company needs to probably get better at. Right. And the frank answer to that is you need change all the time and you need to recognize that. Right. Like change and growth are mindsets. They're not things that occur on occasion and you need to adopt that as your general approach, right? Because organizations that get themselves in trouble or behind in their technology or their market penetration or whatever it might be, have done so because they've stagnated uh, in some way, shape or form. And recognizing that consistent ongoing change is a constant thing you need to be going after, I think is, is the first step. And then enabling your employees to make those changes, right? Like empower them to suggest change, uh, empower them as teams to adopt a change and then to, to roll that out. And the more frequently you get into that kind of mindset and that approach to things, the less frequently you're going to run into scenarios where you have stagnated and you're very far behind the market and your competition and you have to then play a massive transformation catch up game. Right. Uh, and those are tough. They're doable, but they're very tough. And so, you know, that's one answer to that question. The other answer to that question is, okay, how do I recognize when a big change is needed? Right. What's my competition doing? Am I in one of these transformative scenarios where I've fallen behind on market penetration? My sales are dropping off. What's going on? And do I need to have a massive process change uh, rolled out? Do I need to stop doing field sales and transform into doing, you know, online B2B e-commerce? Do I need to have a hybrid blend of those things? Do I need to bring in a way to process, you know, PDF uh, order submissions that come in by email uh, into my organization and, and figure those out. Those are those are a lot bigger to recognize, and you have to do the same things though. Is the interesting part, right? You have to enable your staff again. You have to en- enable people to say change is necessary, and here's why. And then you have to 
give them that power to start enacting it, right? If you have a culture where it's always, well, this is the way we do things. This is the way we do things is not going to last forever. So it's going to be hard to attract new talent. It's going to be hard yeah. to keep your, your top performers. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah. yeah. So that would, that would be how I'd answer that question for sure. Okay. No, no, fair enough. So then I guess a, a follow-up to that, right? When there's so many of these competing changes to be made, how, and this, the answer is it depends. I get that. So try <laughs> to not have that be your answer. Um, how does a brand come to a point where they understand how much change they can take on at once, right? It's probably factored by, you know, the size of your team, the skill level of your team. You know, maybe you, you start out taking a smaller bite and seeing if you can bite off more, you know, but I guess talk to me about how a brand should really be thinking about not only their risk appetite, but their, their capacity for change. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a, another great question. Like this is an area where you can, um, actually measure digital transformations, right? How much of our budget have we dedicated to, um, these big risky transformative efforts, right? Are we dedicating 1% of our budget to that? Or are we dedicating 30% of our budget to that? Right. And that gives you some indication as an organization, what your risk profile is, how much willingness you have to invest in these kinds of things. Right. And then the other thing that I think I would say about this is this is a good moment to bring in frameworks and how you might approach like change prioritization and even understanding things. Right. And your question immediately made me think of like, well, what's the the opportunity cost? What are we losing by not changing, right? And that's definitely one methodology of, of approaching change and understanding what features you might go after, what you might prioritize, what transformation you might undertake in process or digitization or, or you know any number of things. And that's a great place to start, but then I think it leads you down a path of, okay, well, we have to get more sophisticated in what we prioritize, right? Because even in that, you might find that you have 20 things that have a massive opportunity cost to them. And you've got one group arguing that project A is going to be the, the silver bullet. And you've got another group saying, no, we have to go after project D. And that's going to be the thing that really kind of moves the needle for us. And so then you have to start talking about, okay, well, you're going to do, you know, um, impact slash value versus effort frameworks. Are you going to do rice frameworks um, where you're looking at what's the reach, the impact, the confidence, the, you know, the effort that it's going to take, these kinds of things. And you can start to build out some modeling, essentially, that, again, like we were saying, is built on some approximations and some, you know, guesstimations by teams and probably some projections that aren't going to hold 100% true. But you can start to, to identify, hey, these are the three things out of the 20 that we really should go after and that we can do with our resources within a year, right? Yeah. And then you start to ask yourself, do we need to bring in outside help? Right. Do we need to like, are we so far behind the eight ball that we need to augment our resources for a short period of time? Do we need to work with a, you know, an out an outsourced team? Do we need to bring in specialists? Do we need a systems integrator? What's going on and evaluate if that is really a part of your process, too, because that can be a part of change. So, yeah. And I've, I've been 
really, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the rice framework. That's, I've, it's come up recently. You know, I, I'm fascinated by this idea of frameworks, right? Because at the end of the day, it's, it's just like having a Swiss army knife in your pocket. You, you have these situations that come up that may not be exactly the same, but there, there are certain commonalities that you can link together and just the significantly less mental capacity that you need in order to then make decisions and not only make yeah. the decision, but be at least somewhat confident in the decision you're making because, you know, it's backed up by a decision you've made previously. And I feel like it's probably easier to then measure the impact of that change or that decision, right? Cause it's documented. There's a process. Totally is. Totally is. Yeah. You, you've got that history. You, you understand things. You can move forward from it. You can learn from it again down the road. And there's a ton of frameworks, right? Like rice and impact versus effort mapping are, are two. Uh, you could do story mapping if you don't have, you know, a, a huge product. You can do Moscow once you've got a decision, but you need to understand what you're going to include in your MVP, your phase one, you know, future phases. There's all kinds of ways to go about measuring the efforts that you're undertaking. Yeah, absolutely. Now, going back to what you said a, a couple of times now about, you know, change shouldn't always come from the top down, right? Teams should be empowered and feel empowered to make suggestions, to suggest change, you know, throughout the organization. But that's not always the case, right? Because sometimes a business operates in a little bit more archaic of a way. Leadership might be resistant to ideas that don't originate in their own heads. Um, you know, I think that's probably, hopefully not the majority of businesses these days. But from the lens of the team, how do you recommend that they position this change? How should they be organizing themselves or commuting, communicating change in such a way that it's more likely to get a, a good reception from leadership? And then maybe just flip that over. How should leadership organize themselves to be receptive to those ideas? Uh, that's a great question. Um... And I think it's a skill set that, that is really something that people should work on developing, right? So I'm going to give you like a really generic top level answer to it, but it's know your audience, right? And you have to learn how to talk in C-suite speak, right? Like what's important to your CEO? Are you a public facing company that has shareholders that have to have, you know, regular communication with your, your board and your, your C-suite and, and investor relations team? Like are, are there um, earnings per share metrics that you need to learn about and understand that your change is going to drive improved performance of your earnings per share? And that's how you can talk to your CEO and your CFO and, and get them to actually pay attention. Are you, you know, a, an employee owned business where you're going to have to convince more than just the CEO, right? Like you're going to have to tell people across the organization that that change is good for you. You have to understand what those levers are that those people care about in order to grab their attention, right? Once you have their attention and you've said, I can make a positive improvement on metric X that you really care about, then you can start to describe things in a little bit more detail, right? And I think it goes the other way too, right? Know your audience. Um, so you want to roll out massive process changes to people and maybe that's going to impact the day-to-day -day work of a team, right? Uh, maybe this team takes in PDFs via email 
opens them up, reads them, manually types them into an order system and places orders on behalf of customers. And you're going to implement a new software that comes in and automatically reads those PDFs and transforms them into orders without a human ever having to touch it. And so you've got a team of three, five, 10, 20, however many people that are like, what's going to happen to my job? How is my job going to change? I'm going to do quality assurance on the orders that come in now. Um, is my job at risk? Do I need to be considering, you know, moving into a different part of the organization? Is there an opportunity to do that? Right. So you have to talk to those people about what their potential fears and challenges are first. And then you have to tell them why it's going to be a good thing for them. Right. If it is going to be a good thing for them, if it's not, you got to be honest about that too. And none of these things are easy, right? Like if you're a frontline customer service agent that notices an opportunity for change, you may or may not be, but probably likely aren't versed in what the CEO cares about, right? And what line item on the P&L your idea is going to make better, right? But you have to figure those things out in order to actually communicate like we were talking about earlier, right? Otherwise, you can say a lot of things that just don't land. Nope, 100%. And it's interesting how much more important, like technological skills are obviously important, right? Pretty much every company these days is in some way, shape or form a technology company. But it's interesting how much more important it seems to have business acumen. Because you can learn technology skills, you can learn cloud and development and, you know, quality assurance, become a scrum master, all that stuff. But if you can't bridge the gaps that exist between the technology minds of your business and the business minded individuals, if, if you can't do that, then to your point, you're probably not going to be able to communicate effectively with both sides. So it's interesting how that's, it's so intangible, but it seems so much more important in the broader scope. Yeah. Yeah, I would totally agree. Those those softer skills, so to speak, are incredibly important. Incredibly yeah. important. Yeah. Well, and so we've you just talked uh, a second ago about technology, right? And I think we've sort of been dancing around the, the topic of technology this whole conversation. But you know, digital transformation probably one of the biggest buzzwords you know that have been thrown around over the past five, ten years, maybe even longer. But it means a lot of different things to a lot of different companies. So talk to us a little bit when it comes to a broader business strategy. What does a digital transformation really mean and how can its results be measured? So we talked about, you know, how much budget are you contributing to digital today? But, you know, that's proactive. What does it mean and how do you measure it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it means different things to different organizations again, right? Like one of those things can be process change. You can be a business that is online, so to speak, but perhaps to the example we were just talking about, you still have a manual process for taking in email orders uh, that have a, you know, a PDF associated with them with a bunch of line items that somebody's sending. Um, it can be um, warehouse processes. It can be, you know, inventory um, exchange and transfer processes that are being automated and being brought into the digital realm, right? Um, it could even be things like bringing in 
AI uh, to do chat um, or, or something of that nature, right? And then secondarily, it can be actual business model transformation, right? So you could be a business that has relied heavily on field sales for years. And you realize that the world's become digitized. The coming generations are much more familiar with and comfortable with a, you know, less personal and impersonal interaction. They want to transact digitally. Uh, they want to research digitally, right? They don't want to talk to a salesperson. They don't want to pick up a phone call. And so that can be moving an entire organization to actually having an online presence uh, and, and or changing their online presence, right? So that's something in, in my past that I was fortunate to be a part of at Aero Electronics. We changed the online presence, right? They had a very uh, investor-based website communicating to shareholders, talking about the company from that level. And they didn't have, you know, a electronic components parts search facing site. But early on, we were able to figure out that 80% of people came to the website actually to look for parts, not to look for what the latest notes were from the investor relations team. So it can be something as simple as, as that, right? And then I think you can also find that there's maybe domain transformations um, that you know, you're moving from, and these are probably less, relevant these days, maybe, maybe still so, but like you're moving from on-prem to cloud, that kind of thing, right? You're moving your domain from one place to another. And then, you know, ultimately I think with any one of those, there's a cultural transformation that becomes a part of it too, right? Which goes to that communication part. I don't care if you change your process. If you don't also change the culture around that process, that process is going to fail. Somebody's not going to believe in it. They're going to, you know, challenge it. They're going to throw up roadblocks to it. And that cultural change has to happen as well, even probably more so, especially when you're doing that business model transformation, right? Because then you're fighting with people who are in that mindset of this is the way that we've done it. It works. We're making hundreds of millions or billions of dollars potentially. What are you doing coming in here and trying to tell me that we need to change that? So. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Or if it yeah. doesn't seem to yeah, be yeah. broke, why are we trying to fix it? And then like, gosh, going on to the next part of that question, the how do you measure it, right? So measuring a return on, on digital investments, right? What, what does the return of that software process give you um, that we talked about, right? Where you're maybe reading inbound PDFs and transforming them into orders. So how much of your um, efficiency was improved, right? Instead of having a set number of those PDF orders that you can get through in a day with staff, how many can your new software tool do within that same period of time? Is it more? Sure, better be, right? Or why? Or why'd you do that process? And then you also, you know, not to minimize the human component of, of people that are involved. And I won't frame this in a way that is, um, you know, subtracting them from the from the equation. But there is a cost to the labor that goes around a human process, right? And you can regain that cost 
And you don't necessarily have to make that about parting ways with the people that do that process. You can do that as an investment into another area that still requires humans to execute, right? Still requires those touches. Uh, you don't have to look at it as totally subtractive in nature. So that's definitely one way. We talked about you know, the, the process of how much revenue is being generated through those. We talked about how much of your budget are you establishing for those, right? And then you can do cultural changes and customer changes too, right? So. You could do customer satisfaction surveys, CX surveys. You could do NPS scoring to figure out, did the interactions that we created as a change process in our business model uh, improve the customer experience? And are they talking about it in, in how they're responding, right? So those are all measurable things and ways that I would go about looking at uh, measuring the impact of any digital transformation. No, I, I love that. And I love everything you just said there, but one piece, and we sell, we tell this to the brands that, that we partner with also, it's not just about how much time are you saving? How much time are you putting back into people's days? You know, it's not who can we, who can we get rid of because their job isn't needed anymore. It's how can we reallocate those people to drive more meaningful results for the business? We've totally. freed up their time because they don't have to do this repetitive, innocuous manual task. Now they can actually contribute to something that's, you know, more contributing to the broader goal of the company. So I, totally. I love that. Yeah. Now, it's funny because throughout this whole conversation, but several times in, in just that last response, you know, we've talked a lot about these changes and a lot of them seem to impact the, the customer, right? The end customer consumer experience. And I mean, you know, I, I don't know the exact stat, but today consumers have like at least half a dozen interactions with a brand before they even buy or make a purchase decision. So that can be right contents that the brands put out there, stuff for the personalized buyer's journey from first and third party data. And, and that's cool that brands have access to all of this, but it also requires a mindset shift and, and sometimes a process shift to take advantage of it. So I'm just curious in your experience and what you've seen, over the past maybe five years or so, what are some of the most common things brands are missing out on um, which they could take action on to update and improve their customer experience or reach customers in a new way? Oh, gosh. Um, this is, you know, another fantastic question. And I think it's I think it's really interesting in conjunction with the change conversation. Right. Because it talks about it gives us an opportunity, I guess, to talk about maybe a couple different areas where I think one of those things is not um, fully realized yet. And one, one of the things that I would say has also um, taken a great leap recently. So the two things that, I, that immediately come to mind for me are one of them is voice, voice search, right? Um, this is still pretty early in total adoption, right? Like, I, I don't know the exact stat, but Alexa's and Google Homes and these kinds of things haven't fully 100% penetrated everybody's house. But if you talk to some people like me, I have five Amazon Alexa devices spread out around the house in various locations. And uh, we talk to it all the time and ask it questions and interact with it for understanding things, learning new things, playing music, whatever it might be, right? And the majority of that information that's being sourced through voice is coming from databases and coming from the 
internet at large, right? And so if you're asking things as simple as, you know, um, hey, Alexa, where's the best pizza near me, right? That's a very different thing that I've just said than what I would actually type in Google. I'd type in a much shorter version of that, right? I would type in pizza near me, uh, best pizza near me. And you don't talk to people like that. You don't, I, I wouldn't ever walk up to you in person, Nate, and go, best pizza near me and expect <laughs> you to just like spurt out an answer, <laughs> right? And so as we start to interact with voice devices, that's going to become more natural speech than it will be this internet shorthand that lots of us have learned to, you know, kind of hack through search engines with. And this is part of the whole friendly content update that, that's happened recently. And it's talking in natural ways and actually creating helpful content, not hacked content that is aimed at, you know, keying in on those those search terms that people are, are breaking down into not including pronouns and, you know, adverbs and adjectives and, and things, right? And so there's that. And then the next one that I would say that really kind of took off during the pandemic is payment methodologies. And contactless payment methodologies, right? Um, and speedier payment methodologies. The number of websites that still don't accept things like Apple Pay or PayPal or you know various wallets is astonishing to me, right? And this doesn't even get into the world of things like Affirm and Klarna, where people are able to break up payments into you know multiple units, which is applicable to B two B too, by the way. Um, but you know you can find that a lot of these sites aren't doing things that streamline that process. And I think as a you know as a global community. Over the past couple of years, we've all become much more familiar and capable with and versed in using these payment methodologies to transact, right? Uh, if you look at China globally, they switched before a bunch of us did, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever utilized or seen Alipay or, or any of these, but in China to transact on the internet, you scan a QR code with your phone and it automatically debits your you know your bank account basically and that's your that's your checkout methodology versus okay well I got to remember my credit card number or go get my wallet and type it in or whatever and so these contactless and more streamlined and singular payment methodologies I think are huge opportunities for people no, I, I love it. I, I had a conversation recently with uh, a founder of a startup that deals with like SMS payments. So more yeah. specifically, like if you want to text a small business and, and pay them through that. And he brought up this idea that, you know, in the United States, we had a desktop revolution, right? And I think you and I spoke about this previously. We started out as a society of people that had, you know, first it was the full room size PCs and then everyone had one in their living room. Whereas maybe not most other, but a lot of other parts of the world, before they had desktops, the mobile, the mobile, uh, you know, platform, the mobile system was the, definitely totally. the most used. So it's just more, there's a higher comfort level there. Yeah. So, and, and also just as a, ta as a tangent, I don't know if you've ever seen the Google as a person videos where it's oh, like a I guy think sitting I, at a I desk think I have. Pretends to be Google. Yeah, I think oh my have. gosh. I'll send you one of the links <laughs> after just in case, but that's all I could think of. You know, I, if somebody came up to the street and, and shouted that at me, I'd probably still give them the answer, but I would definitely <laughs> make fun of them the entire way home. Um, 
you know, just because Matt, I want to be conscientious of your schedule. I, I have one more question I wanted to ask. Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about, about change, about the consumer experience, about digital transformation, but when it actually comes to, you know, the modern working environment, a lot of people are working remotely, right? Still a lot of people in offices, but that's kind of, you know, seeming to change and, and probably not going to necessarily go back to what it was before COVID. What are some unique challenges that brands today face when it comes to making organizational change as a dispersed team, right? They're not all together in one locale. So how does that, if at all, make this different? Um, it does It does modify it, right? I think it still comes down to the same core principles. But so if you have a dispersed team, depending upon how dispersed they are, uh, again, you're going to be talking about multiple meetings probably, right? So do you have a team in Europe? Can you expect them to attend the same meeting online at the same time as your U.S. counterparts? Maybe, and maybe it does work out. Most likely it'd probably be better to schedule them at different times, right? So it might be that you as the change leaders in an organization have to accept that you have to communicate even more. Right. And you have to then also realize what are the best methodologies for doing this? So you can't necessarily expect everybody's going to come to a Zoom meeting with 200 people and that they're really going to be engaged. Right. Do you need to have smaller groups? Do you need to increase the cadence and frequency of your meetings because of this? Um, the other thing that I would add to this, because a lot of our colleagues happen to actually be um, in other countries. Uh, and they're not native English speakers. They speak English as a second language, right? And so I think um, that this is probably going to become more and more of, you know, a change component. I, I won't even call it a, a challenge. Like, you got to figure it out. Um, and, you know, do you need to have a Spanish first um, meeting? Do you need to have other languages? Do you need to have closed captions on corporate videos that you do that you're sharing out about change, right? So you just have to be a little bit more thoughtful in how you approach it, but the core principles to me still remain. No, absolutely. Well, Matt, this this has been an, an informational, packed conversation. <laughs> I've personally learned a lot. I'm really, really excited to, for you know our, the audience to to learn as I have from you. Um, you know, if anyone that's listening to the show uh, hears something that really resonates with them, they would like to reach out and, and maybe pick your brain. You know, where is the best place for us to direct them? Yeah. So, I mean, the two most obvious places are one, our company website, which is www.nimblegravity.com. And the other one would be feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, it's Matt Ranta, and I'm happy to connect with folks, have conversations and engage in, in meaningful ways. So let's do it. Awesome. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Matt. Um, I'm really looking forward to hopefully having you on again in the future. Yeah, I would love it. It's been a great conversation, Nate. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of e-commerce with coffee powered by Amber engine. If you haven't gotten your fix yet, be sure to get more e-commerce brand secrets on our website at amberengine.com. And don't forget to subscribe for more episodes.